Welcome, gentlemen, to Aperture Science. Astronauts, war heroes, Olympians, you're here because we want the best. And you are it. So, who is ready to make some science? <laughs> now, you already met one another on the limo ride over, so let me introduce myself. I'm Cave Johnson. I own the place. That eager voice you heard is the lovely Carolyn, my assistant. Rest assured, she has transferred your honorarium to the charitable organization of your choice. Isn't that right, Carolyn? She's the backbone of this facility. Pretty as a postcard, too. Sorry, fellas. She's married. To science. Hey there, welcome to the Lore to Death podcast. My name's Brett, and today I would like to take a trip back to the 1940s and 50s where it was acceptable to inject men with praying mantis DNA and cover yourself in goop made of moon rocks without fear of it giving you a deadly form of cancer. Okay, maybe it wasn't acceptable in the slightest back then, and the moon goop will kill you over a decade or two, but that never stopped Cave Johnson, founder of Aperture Laboratories. I will never forget the release of Portal 2. It was the first game that I ever pre-ordered, and the first game that I took the day off school to play. I spent the day with a friend who wasn't able to get the game for themselves, and we played for probably 12 hours straight. We ordered a pizza in the middle of the afternoon and had a grand old time. But that was back in the day when I could sit down for 12 hours doing the exact same thing and I wasn't plagued with the knowledge of taxes and rent. Released a mere three and a half years after the first Portal in 2011, Portal 2 was an overwhelming success. The quirky art style and quippy lines thrown at you by the likes of J.K. Simmons mixed with the existential dread of being trapped in a decaying test facility underground was something I haven't quite seen since. It was certainly unique and it holds a very special place in my heart. But you might be thinking, Brett, Aperture Laboratories existed in Portal 1 as well. Why are you focusing so much on Portal 2? Quite simply, we know next to nothing about Aperture Science from the brief glimpse that we get in Portal 1, and it's not until Portal 2 where you get into the bones of the facility and learn its origins, and a detailed timeline to how it ended up failing. If you watch the episode on Black Mesa, the little tidbits that we get there are all we really knew about Aperture at the time. So let's dig in and immerse ourselves in the history of Aperture Laboratories and see where it all began. I want to preface this by saying that Aperture has had many different names over the years, and over time I'm just going to refer to it as Aperture for the most part. I will note the name changes, but for sake of my sanity, I'm just going to say Aperture instead of Aperture Laboratories, or Aperture Science, or Aperture Fixtures. We'll get into it. So Aperture was founded in the early 1940s by a man named Cave Johnson. At the time of its conception, it was not the science titan that we know and love, but a shower fixtures manufacturer called Aperture Fixtures. The name was chosen because it made the curtains sound more hygienic and less just, like, curtains. It was something that he could actually sell. And I guess a precursor to the portal technology that they would become known for, you could think of shower curtains as a portal into your shower. Okay, maybe that's a stretch, so let's move on. After getting a contract to supply shower curtains to the U.S. military, winning the 1943 Shower Curtain Salesman of the Year Award, I can't imagine that was a big field, Cave Johnson became rich beyond measure. He used his wealth to expand his company and follow the reasonable trajectory of a shower curtain manufacturer and evolved the company into a scientific research facility called Aperture Science Innovators in the late 1943. Cave Johnson bought an abandoned salt mine in Upper Michigan to house his research facility and had an alternate research facility bought in Cleveland, Ohio. Throughout the late 40s and 50s, Aperture would begin its comprehensive testing and research practices beyond shower curtains. The best test subjects being the cream of the crop of mankind, Olympians, war heroes, and astronauts. They started recruiting these first test subjects in a hush-hush, need-to-know manner. None of this was strictly legal, as you could not involve humans in certain tests without having it tested successfully otherwise, according to the Scientific Code of Ethics. So they were more or less paid under the table to involve themselves in some wacky tests for the sake of science. 
In fact, there were posters up in the facility that warned if an employee were to see the police, a journalist, or something similar, to sound the alarm as to stop any illegal or ethically questionable practice before it was seen by the eyes of an outsider or the law. During this time to the early and mid-1950s, Aperture was the second largest contractor to the U.S. Department of Defense right behind Black Mesa. It's not really known when Black Mesa came into the picture, but the two companies must have been created around the same time to be as big as they were and to be direct competitors. Again, if you listen to the Black Mesa episode, you would know a little bit more about their competition, but we'll also go over it here. In this period, Aperture developed the Repulsion Gel, a light blue substance that, as the name would imply, had repelling abilities. Any object that came into contact with the surface covered in Repulsion Gel would bounce off quite erratically like a bouncy rubber ball off a kitchen floor. The height of the object or person that fell onto it would subsequently affect the height of the bounce. So, more height equals more bounce. The technology really wasn't quite there at the time it was invented, so it took another few years for it really to get off its feet. They made the weighted storage cube. As you might guess, it was a large armored cube with a blue ring at the center of each side that would change color if placed on a super button. But what is a super button, you might ask? Well, it was the 1500 megawatt super colliding super button. Say that 10 times fast, I dare you. It was a giant button, as you might suspect, that is typically weighed down by something like the weighted storage cube that would provide power to another object such as an electrically powered door. When pressed down, the door would open as long as the button remains depressed. There were several variations of the button, but they were all, in essence, a giant button. And they had the patented Aperture Science portable quantum tunneling device. It was a really big word for a portal gun. So this was an early version of the handheld portal device that was used in the games. Although the version created during this period was not quite as portable and it was quite large and clunky. It would take several years to get it near the point that we see in the games. Now, all of these kind of seem pretty tame, with the exception of the repulsion gel. But even then, you can see how that wouldn't necessarily be nefarious. So you might be wondering, why did they have to keep this all under wraps from the feds? Well, that's because there was some seriously problematic things happening behind the scenes. From voice lines by Cave Johnson from 1952 to like 1957, we get an idea of some of the weird stuff that they were throwing at the wall and seeing what stuck. Like injecting humans with praying mantis DNA. And to quote Cave Johnson, Those of you who volunteered to be injected with praying mantis DNA, I've got some good news and some bad news. Bad news, we're postponing the tests indefinitely. Good news, we've got a much better test for you. Fighting an army of mantis men. Pick up a rifle and follow the yellow line. You'll know when the test starts. They threw that one at the wall, and when it didn't stick, they kind of just shot at it with automatic assault rifles. In an early test with the repulsion gel, they put nanoparticles in a control group's gel that would pump experimental genes and RNA molecules into their bloodstream and rid them of the tumors. Wait, what tumors you might ask? Well, if you sat on a folding chair in the lobby without wearing lead underpants, then congratulations, you now have tumors. It also turns out the element that the gel is created from is quite harmful if you end up covered in it, and to quote Cave Johnson again, it's a lively one, and it does not like the human skeleton. Then there were tests like replacing a test subject's blood with gasoline, or peanut water, via lasers, or exposing the subject to the business end of a jet engine in an attempt to lower the water level in their body. Cave Johnson concluded that the average amount of water in a human body was excessive, and they wanted to lower it. As you can guess... It really didn't end up well. They also laced the subject's coffee with a fluorescent calcium so that they could easier track their brain activity. Harmless, maybe, but this occasionally led to the calcium hardening, causing the vitrification of the frontal lobe. Which, you know, means death. And then there's the fact that the testing spheres and aperture were made from asbestos. And their reasoning was that it kept out the rats. 
The scientists were acutely aware of the negative effects of asbestos and continued to make the test chambers out of them regardless. They did let the test subjects know, while they were already inside them, and told them that it will slowly kill them and that it was for the name of science. But that didn't stop them from using it. There are a lot more tests that they did run. Um, these are just kind of a few of the bigger ones that were extremely questionable. And I could probably sit here for literal hours and talk about the absolutely horrendous things that they've done. However, the only thing we really know for sure that happened in the 60s was that in 1968, Aperture was being investigated by the government about the disappearance of astronauts during the tests in their facilities. We don't really know what happened to them, but it's a pretty popular theory that they were being teleported into space to gather moon rocks, and they somehow got lost up there. Aperture had discovered quantum tunneling at this point, and it's not unreasonable to believe that they managed to shoot a portal up onto the moon, because moon rocks, as we will know later, create a great surface for portals. In fact, they created what they call conversion gel, which is made from ground-up moon rocks. Since not every surface is conducive to making a portal, this gel would essentially cover the surface with moon rocks, making it possible to use portals on that surface. So I think they probably shot a portal up onto the moon to gather more moon rocks, and the astronauts, maybe their cord got cut and they drifted into space, or maybe they were just stranded on the moon when a portal broke, or who knows, but there's not really any information on that. We also hear in a voice memo that allegedly Black Mesa stole some intellectual property from Aperture in regards to the handheld portal device, giving them an opportunity to make the technology public before Aperture was able to. Cave Johnson was reluctant to release the technology into the wild because it wasn't finished yet. If you remember, their early iterations were quite large and clunky, full of a lot of wires and loose ends, and they weren't quite as handheld as the name might have suggested. And the reason it wasn't released yet is because while Cave Johnson was a total sociopath and would try anything and everything that came to mind at the expense of everyone else around him, he would never release a product without it being immaculate. He had a sort of eccentric perfectionism that made him so successful in the first place. Unfortunately, that perfectionism is what caused Black Mesa to ultimately gain the upper hand. They would put out more product a little bit more efficiently, while Cave Johnson would spend extra time to make sure that they were in his eyes, quote-unquote, perfect. This allowed them to get more contracts and garner more wealth, while Aperture was basically bankrupt at this point. So during this period and through the 70s, uh, because of money problems, Aperture started paying vagrants $60 apiece to participate in testing as they could no longer afford the quality test subjects. And they probably killed most of them as well. They would find homeless people sleeping on streets and park benches, offered them a few bucks, and took them into the facility. So this was in full force in around 1971, and by 1976, they were offering test subjects more money to participate in dangerous and invasive testing. Cave Johnson put it best. You could walk out of here with 120 weighing down in your bindle if you let us take you apart, put some science stuff in you, then put you back together good as new. All you gotta do is let us assemble you. We're not banging rocks together here. We know how to put a man back together. Unfortunately for the test subjects, it's more likely that most of them would never collect their prize. With an increase in testing for the repulsion gel during this period, the tests only got more hazardous. They essentially got free testing out of these folks, and it's likely that they chose homeless people for that purpose. No one would be asking after them if they never came out, and they had nothing to lose, and $60 to gain. In the 80s, Aperture rebranded for the final time into Aperture Laboratories, and this is what we would know them as in the game. By this point, they were so financially destitute that they started mandating that employees participate in testing. They were still taking vagrants off the street, but they had switched over to primarily using employees as their research into robotics had progressed to the point where plenty of jobs had been entirely replaced by robots, making them expendable. Also in this period, they had more or less completed research and employed conversion gel within test chambers. So moon rocks are everywhere. 
What Cave Johnson didn't know a couple decades ago is that constant exposure to moon rocks turned out to be quite lethal. What he ended up developing was probably silicosis, a real effect from breathing dust from crushed lunar rock, as well as the lunar material being ionized and filled with toxic compounds by cosmic radiation, an effect found in Martian soil. He figured that since the moon rocks were the cause of his illness, he could somehow repurpose the conversion gel to create new portals that would somehow leash the sickness out of his body, effectively reversing his illness. Unfortunately for Cave Johnson, the results of the test were inconclusive. Leading up to his final days, he became more erratic than he was before, which is kind of terrifying, and he gave us the fabled Cave Johnson When Life Gives You Lemons rant. If you haven't heard it, please go listen to it. I'm not going to put the full thing in here, but it is absolutely unhinged and possibly the greatest gift that gaming has ever given us. Around this time where his mortality was deteriorating, he had the fantastic revelation. If we can store music on a compact disc, why can't we store a man's intelligence and personality on one? And you're totally right, Cave. Creating an MP3 is the exact same as creating a digital map of someone's brain. How could we have not realized this sooner? So they started research on the genetic life form and disc operating system, or GLaDOS. The idea is there would be an artificial intelligence that carried his consciousness, so that even after his death he would be able to control the facility in another form. With the integration of AI and robotics in all sections of the facility, GLaDOS would be able to control everything flawlessly and simultaneously. If you've played Portal, you might be saying, but GLaDOS had a definitively feminine voice. Is that really Cave Johnson in there? And to that, I can happily say no. Fearing that he would not live to see the technology finished, he ordered that upon his death, his faithful assistant Caroline would take over Aperture Laboratories and would have her consciousness uploaded into GLaDOS when the time came, even if the scientists had to force her, as Cave Johnson said. Now, I haven't mentioned Caroline yet, but Caroline had been working along Cave Johnson as his personal secretary for many years. She had appeared briefly on his pre-recorded voice notes that echoed throughout the test chambers, mostly in small affirmations whenever he would reference her in one of his notes. So he would say something like, right, Caroline? And she would be like, yeah, dog. And that's pretty much it. Otherwise, we really don't know much about Caroline or what she did in the facility. But Cave Johnson described her as the backbone of this facility, and he trusted her enough that he wanted her to run Aperture after his death. So we're going to fast forward quite a bit at this point into 1998, where Cave Johnson had succumbed to his illness and passed away, we can assume. There really isn't much information surrounding this point, and we can also assume that Caroline was dead as well, and had her consciousness uploaded into GLaDOS, because this is the day that GLaDOS became operational, just in time for the annual Bring Your Daughter to Work Day. GLaDOS became immediately self-aware and very homicidal. I'm going to go on a limb and say that Caroline was forcefully coerced into the idea and the image of her consciousness that was mapped was one that was scared and very hateful towards the scientists that were responsible. Both of those emotions would line up to her being extremely hostile. She flooded the facility with a deadly nerve toxin, killing basically everyone in the facility, along with pretty well all of the daughters that might have been there that day. But we know that there are at least two that did not die. Doug Ratman, or the Ratman, was a scientist who managed to survive. We see this from his dens that are scattered throughout the test chambers in Portal, usually hidden behind wall panels and stuff. They were little crevices that you could go into, and there were just scrawlings and paintings all over the walls. Usually pretty incoherent nonsense, but Doug was a paranoid schizophrenic who, after being forced into hiding within the facility, unfortunately became a raving madman due to the lack of medication that was keeping him functional. We never see him personally in-game, but we do see him in the comic Portal 2 Lab Rat. We see his descent into madness as he starts to talk to inanimate objects, like the weighted companion cube. It's basically a weighted storage cube, but instead of a glowing blue-yellow circle on the sides, it had a little pink heart. It was quite lovely. 
And from his dens, he watches the main character from Portal, Chell, as she runs through the test chambers. Chell is the other that we know didn't die from the nerve toxins. Now, there's no way to confirm that she was actually there that day, but it does make a lot of sense. Several times through the games, GLaDOS pokes fun at Chell, saying that she's adopted as a means to aggravate her. I would assume that since the toxin incident happened on Bring Your Daughter to Work Day, Chell was the daughter of one of the scientists and she was raised by the robots inside Aperture, making GLaDOS her adopted mother. Now, this isn't confirmed as far as I'm aware, so take that with a grain of salt. But I'm a big fan of the theory, and that's all it really is, is a theory. Since GLaDOS had turned Aperture into a perpetual testing facility, the events of Portal take place running tests as Chell. I'm going to briefly go over the events of the games. I'm not going to nitpick on every single detail, because that isn't necessarily important to Aperture as a whole, but I'll go over the important bits. After running through many tests, you come to realize that not all is as it may seem. You learn that GLaDOS isn't as friendly as she first appears, and the tests become more and more rigorous until eventually the testing is quote-unquote over, and Chell is being lowered into a giant furnace. With the trusty handheld portal device all finished at this point, Chell is able to make a grand escape, running through the guts of the facility behind test chambers and making their way to the central AI core, where she fights GLaDOS and dismantles the giant robot by shooting the AI cores off her body and chucking them into a furnace. After defeating GLaDOS, Aperture Laboratories starts to burst into flames and explosions. Chell is knocked out and blown up to the surface of the parking lot. How does that make sense exactly? I don't know. But the game ends there, and we get the happy little tune, still alive, to tell us that we might have won the battle, but we lost the war. GLaDOS is, unfortunately, still alive. So here's where things get a little bit confusing, because if you didn't read the Ratman comic, then you end Portal 1 above ground, and you wake up, suddenly, below ground. Thankfully, we do have the comic to explain it a little bit. As Ratman follows the explosions and finds a way to the surface, he sees an unconscious Chell being dragged back into the facility by a robot. Feeling a pang of guilt, he enters the facility to find Chell in a cryogenic chamber, although the chamber is offline due to GLaDOS being currently offline. He proceeds to save Chell's life by unplugging all other available chambers from their cryogenic supply and puts them into hers. In the process, he is shot by little turrets and he has some injuries. It's not known whether or not he ended up escaping, but we can hope that maybe through his efforts, his story had a happy ending. But unfortunately, that's all we really see of the Ratman. After several years, Chell is reawakened by Wheatley, an AI personality core similar to the ones that Chell destroyed in her fight against GLaDOS. In their adventures, they happen upon the corpse of GLaDOS, and accidentally end up reawakening her. Now, again, there is a lot of story that happens in Portal 2, but we're going to kind of condense it down into the most important bits. So, long story short, Wheatley initiates a core transfer and takes over GLaDOS' chassis while her core is put into a potato battery. Wheatley becomes immediately crazed with power and he basically becomes GLaDOS 2.0 and instead of the happy little AI core that we met in the beginning of the game, he is a sociopath. With the help of Potato GLaDOS, Chell is able to take him down in the end. After going through several test facilities, including the ones all through the 1900s where we get all the information about Aperture, they confront Wheatley in a final fight where Chell sets a portal below him and one on the moon, sucking both Wheatley and Chell into the void of space. GLaDOS regains control over her chassis just in time to pull Chell back into the facility, saving her while Wheatley is just floating through space forever. In return for Chell helping GLaDOS return to her chassis, Chell is set free from the facility. She takes a nice long elevator ride up to what looks like a remote entrance into the facility in the middle of a field. When she looks behind her, the door slams shut, and Chell is free to leave, and unfortunately, unable to enter again. After this, that's all the information that we have. 
There is the Portal 2 co-op mode where you play as two robots and run through a series of tests as the robots, but that isn't necessarily as important to the story of Aperture. It's all kind of just the same stuff that they've been putting people through for decades, and you really don't learn a whole lot other than the other tests that they've put people through. So GLaDOS is clearly still alive and able to control the facility, but with a new sense of purpose and hopefully an attitude adjustment, as long as it's never discovered and it's left alone, theoretically, the facility could run forever. So we can rest easy knowing that there's still science to be done, and research to be run, and GLaDOS is still alive. And that brings us to the end of the episode, and the end of Aperture as we know it. I would love to hear what you think. Do you think that Cave Johnson was a total sociopath? Do you think that he had any redeeming qualities? Do you think that there was good work done at Aperture, or do you think it was all just nonsense? You can find us online at lord to death on your favorite social media and podcast websites. If you have any ideas, let me know and they could become an episode. Until then, please make sure to consult the Code of Ethics before any researching and experimenting. Stay safe, and I'll talk to you off next time. See ya.